So how are you doing this morning, Bethesda? Excellent. I just want to put a plug in for the 16-week Bible reading event that we're going to do. I was reminded that in the book of Ezra, the people of God had gone through a really rough, difficult time having been in Babylonian captivity. And so they've come out of Babylonian captivity, and now they are back in Jerusalem. And Ezra encourages the people to come together. And so they, they all gather and they begin to read scripture together. And when they begin to read scripture together, a nationwide renewal took place. There's something powerful about the people of God coming together. And even if we don't read the text in the same place, but just knowing that we are all reading the same thing and generally the same time, I believe God is going to use that to stir up and wake up renewal in our midst. Amen? If you have your Bibles with, with you, turn to John chapter 5. I'm going to read the first nine verses. And if you're able, would you stand with me to honor the word as we read? I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos or porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And there was a man there who had been ill for 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Arise, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, took up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was on the Sabbath on that day. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have left us a witness and a testimony of who you are, a living witness and a living testimony. And Father, we are so grateful this morning that the Holy Spirit breathes upon us to help us to understand your word and even more than to understand, to know how to apply this word to our lives. Father, more than anything else, we want you, Jesus, to be glorified in everything that we do in this moment and in every moment to come. What we are saying is come, Spirit of the living God, and breathe on us, your people, this morning. We are asking, my Father, that you would take fire from off of your own altar and ignite the altars of our hearts this morning. That we might leave this place transformed, different than the way that we came in. And we ask this all for the honor and glory of the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This sermon this morning has five points. I am completely diverging from your traditional three points and a poem. I'm going with five poems and a song. <laughs> so let me start with the introduction. When you come to John chapter 5, you would note that this is the third recorded miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John. 
The first miracle you would have found in John chapter 2 where the water is turned into wine. What an awesome demonstration of the deity of Jesus Christ that even the water submits to his command to become wine. That he has complete power over all things in the natural realm. The second miracle is the healing of the son of the nobleman. This man comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus basically says, go home, your son is healed. This man gets home and finds that his son was healed at the exact moment that Jesus spoke healing in the direction of his son. Again, demonstrating the deity of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you spend any time reading the Gospel of John at all, you will find that from the beginning to the end of that Gospel, John has one goal in mind, and that is to show that Jesus Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus He's not some image of God. He is God. And he is God made manifest. He pitched his tent toward humanity and walked among us so that we could become the sons and daughters of the Most High God. He turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. And here he goes to a man that's been 38 years in a sickness at a pool called Bethesda. Let me give you a little bit of background about this place, this pool called Bethesda. In 1956, archaeologists doing excavations in and around Jerusalem discovered the pool of Bethesda with the five colonnades. Now St. Anne's Cathedral sits on that site. The pool at Bethesda is about as large as a football field. That would make it approximately twice the size of this sanctuary. Around that pool, people would gather in hopes that the water would be stirred and that someone or they would find the strength within them to be the first ones to step into that water and to be healed. It is not unusual to find people enamored with healing springs and healing bodies of water. We don't even have to go 2,000 years back into history to find such beliefs. Being a person who lives in Mineral Wells, Texas, there are people who come to Mineral Wells by the hundreds, not by the thousands, but by the hundreds, to find the, the crazy, they call it crazy water, but it's the mineral water that's produced in the springs there in Mineral Wells, Texas. Many of you have been to Eureka Springs and Hot Springs. As a matter of fact, Stuart and I went to Eureka Springs a couple of years ago and spent the night at a hotel there called the Crescent. And at the Crescent, we were told that before it was a hotel, that it had been a place a rehab or a convalescing home for people who had incurable diseases. They would come and it was like a hospital and people with a lot of money would pay to go and stay in this hospital because they would have close proximity to the springs there in Eureka Springs, Arkansas because they believed that those springs had healing power. That is not a modern belief, it is very ancient. So all the way back to 2,000 years ago and even beyond that for other places, you find venues like the pool at Bethesda. People would gather around this pool because they believed that this water, when touched by an angel, stirred by an angel, would have healing properties. 
As we read these nine verses, many of you may have noted that verse 4 was completely missing in some translations. The New King James Version, this portion is going to be missing because this is not found in the older manuscripts. It's believed that this is an editorial addition to give understanding for why these people would be hanging out at this pool called Bethesda. So that gives you a little bit of background. You know the size you know a little bit about why people would come to this place. The pool is located at the Sheep Gate. That would mean that anyone stationed at this pool would be in visual range of the temple area itself. And they would even be able to hear the celebration and the rejoicing over the three compulsory festivals, Pentecost, Passover, and Sukkot, or Tabernacles. There's no historical documentation that I could find anywhere that gave testimony that anyone was ever healed by stepping in to the pool at Bethesda, even if the waters were stirred. These people were laying there, some, in this man's case, for 38 years, waiting for something that probably would never come to pass for them. And that brings me to the first point, the porches or the porticos. This is the place where the sick the blind, the lame, and the diseased were laid. This is the kind of place that only those individuals that would be called to minister to such with maybe a portion of bread or a sip of water would come. Everyone else there would be infirmed and sick. I wonder sometimes if we don't build porches to cover and make ourselves comfortable and those infirmities, maybe not physical, but spiritual infirmities that maybe we just have grown comfortable with. I wonder if we couldn't say that there were five porches and the broken, the gossips, the offended, the rejected, the outcast, those individuals who just couldn't get over things that had happened to them and they all gathered together. Have you ever noticed that in our humanity, we tend to draw people around us and we tend to congregate ourselves around people who share similar issues with us? When Stuart and I first got married, it will be 20 years ago in May, just really hard for me to believe. When Stuart and I first got married, I didn't know anything about marriage. I didn't know what, what to do. I didn't know how to behave. I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know how to be married because I'd never been married before. So what did I do? I started hanging out with other married ladies. And the married ladies that I hung out with, some of the things that I would hear them say as we had lunch would be things like, I just wish he would figure some things out. <laughs> and the other person would respond, I know, my husband too. And they would sit there and they would nitpick their husbands to death. And because that was the company I had put myself in, I found myself doing the same thing. Now, my husband's pretty close to perfect, so I had to look really hard to find anything, and I had to even stretch a few things. And you know Stuart, so you know I'm telling the truth. We tend to take on the attitude and the posture of those people that we gather around. And we tend to gather around those people who have attitudes and postures that we can lean into. Believe it or not, I have sometimes in my past been a smart aleck. 
I know, hard to believe, isn't it? It is easy for me to find other people with sharp tongues and to hang around with them and to become critical and cynical along with them. I have to guard my heart against such company. As Pastor Dan has told us repeatedly from this very pulpit, show me who your friends are and I will show you your future. Show me who your friends are and I will show you the attitude and the posture that you will develop. Your friends are some of the most important choices you'll ever make. Choose wisely. These people were there because they probably had nowhere else to go. They couldn't go to the temple because the temple law required that they be whole and healthy in order to enter the temple courts, at least physically. So they find themselves stationed, camped out under a porch at the pool of Bethesda, hoping and waiting for something that will never happen, probably. This was a come-as-you-are, stay-as-you-are format. Not here in Fort Worth. But in other places, somewhere else, there is an attitude in churches of the 21st century that is so desperate just to get people in that the attitude has come, just get them in, come as you are and stay as you are. I don't know what that is, but it's not the church of Jesus Christ. When you come together in the body of Christ and the Spirit of God is present with power and transformation, we do not stay as we came. He changes us and transforms us from glory to glory until we look like Him and act like Him and speak like Him and think like Him. Most of us are a work in progress, but He is changing us. This should have been a place of mercy because Bethesda is a cognate word composed of two words, Beth and Seda, meaning house or place of mercy. This should have been a place of mercy, but instead... It had become a gathering of the miserable. True biblical mercy does not allow me to stay the way that Jesus finds me. Mercy changes us, heals us, delivers us, and makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus. There is a popular trend in culture at large that says that if we are a merciful Christian, then we have nothing negative to say about anything nor anyone. And any lifestyle is okay. If it makes you happy, it makes me happy. That's not mercy. I'm not quite sure what to call that, but the mercy that is biblical, the mercy that flows from the heart of God himself is a transformational mercy that says, be like me, let me change you, let me heal you, let me make you more than you could ever be on your own. Aren't you glad you guys came to church this morning? If you come to church or if you're watching online this morning and you're doing it just to feel better, but there's no change in you, there's no transformation in your nature, then there's a loose connection in your relationship with Jesus. He does take us just as we are, but he does not allow us to remain the way that he finds us. He transforms us from the inside out. So these people are gathered at these porches, the lame, the blind, the sick, the diseased. Here are the people. They're gathered and they're sharing a certain level of fellowship because they share a fellowship of sickness. And they're waiting for something. Every person in this room, if I had the opportunity, and every person watching this morning live, 
If I were to have the opportunity to ask you, every one of you would say that you're waiting on something. You're waiting for God to bring that son or that daughter back home. You're waiting for God to change your wife or change your husband. You're waiting for God to get you out of a bad job situation. You're waiting for God to give you financial help and resolve to pay your bills so that you're not living from paycheck to paycheck. You're waiting for God to show you what your next step is. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting everybody's waiting but if I had the opportunity to ask everyone what they were waiting for very few if anyone would take the posture and say I'm waiting for him to change me I'm waiting for him to transform me I'm waiting for him to take my diseased cravings and attitudes and ideologies and clean them up and make me whole on the inside. I'm waiting for him to change me. Psalm chapter 40, verse 1, simply says this. I waited patiently on the Lord. And he inclined toward me and he heard my cry. I want to note several things that the psalmist discloses to us about waiting. He said, I waited. Someone else cannot do your waiting for you. Someone else cannot do your lingering in the presence of God for you. Someone else cannot do your praying for you. Someone else cannot do your worship and your praying and your praising for you. I waited on the Lord. He waited. One of the things that's at my top 10 list of things that I do not like to do, wait is at the top. I do not wait well. If I see a long line, I have the tendency to leave and wait for another day. When I go to the doctor's office, the worst part about being in the doctor's office is the wait. I don't mind the exam. I don't mind the conversation. I do mind the scales. (laughs) But even more than the scales, I don't like to wait. When I'm waiting, I have all these thoughts that run through my brain. When I'm waiting, I have all the things that I should be doing, ought to be doing. Suddenly, they're screaming in front of me. Suddenly, the house that I didn't want to clean becomes a top priority. (laughs) If I could just get home, I would clean my house. I would sweep the floor and dust the furniture because I don't like to wait. But when you wait on the Lord... It's different than that. You're not waiting for an answer. You're not waiting for a conversation. You're not waiting for him to tell you what to do. You're not waiting for him to fix the problem. You're waiting on him. And waiting on him looks like this. I wait for the Lord in that I'm always listening for him. I wait for the Lord and that before I make a decision, I simply whisper, Lord, a little wisdom, please. I wait on the Lord and that I praise him at every opportunity. I wait on the Lord and that I have sanctioned time in which to open up the book and study, not just read through, but study his word and then talk to him about what's in the book. I wait on the Lord, not because I want an answer. I wait on the Lord because I love him. I wait on the Lord because he is my Savior and my Lord, and he is worth waiting on. I wait on the Lord because I need him. 
More than I need answers. More than I need solutions. More than I need direction. I need him. I'm reminded from the book of Job. Job loses everything. He loses his money. He loses his cattle. He loses his children. He loses his home. He loses everything. And then finally, he loses his health. And he's covered with sores. And he has four friends that come to comfort him. And it ends up backfiring and makes him more miserable instead. Finally, Job, in desperation, cries out, God! I want you to come down. I've got a bone to pick with you. I've got something to say to you. We need to have a conversation. He even cries out, I wish that there were an arbitrator, someone who could stand between me and God and help me understand what it is that's going on. Much to his surprise, God shows up. And what does Job say? Shut my mouth. I have said things too big for me. Because Job realized that he didn't need answers to his why. He needed the presence of God. God never answers Job's questions of why. He just simply shows up. Church, can I tell you today that if you're waiting on anything or anyone other than the presence of the Lord, you are waiting on the wrong thing. You may get your answer. You may get your healing. But you might miss the Lord. And I would rather have him. Take my treasure. Take my land. Take whatever you want. Just don't take your presence from me, Lord. That was David's cry in Psalm 51. Wait on the Lord. I waited on the Lord. And he leaned toward me. Your translation is going to say inclined. But when I waited on the Lord, he leaned toward me. I want God to lean toward me. I need for God to lean toward me. Because when he leans toward me, then he hears my cry. He picks me up out of the miry clay. Then he puts my feet on a solid ground. Then he puts a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to my God. But what are these people in John chapter 5 waiting for? They're waiting for God to come down or an angelic emissary to stir up the waters. They're waiting for someone to pick them up at the right time and put them in to the water of healing. They're waiting for God to fix something. But they're not waiting on him. This is how humanistic religion works. They're waiting on something, but they're expecting nothing. This system's working for them. They can feel good about gathering in their sicknesses, and no one expects anything out of them. Oh, we, we can't have him do anything. He's not well. We can't have her involved in this because, well, you know, she just can't walk very well. And we, we don't want him involved. He just he doesn't see very well. And so now they've got a permanent, legitimate excuse for gathering together and having absolutely no expectations. They're not well, but it's not their fault. God has not come down. An angel has not stirred up the waters. If the waters were or, or to be stirred up, then they had to be the first one into the waters. This sounds more like a lottery than a place of mercy and healing. The mercy they had accepted was the kind of mercy that left them in their condition, and they had grown comfortable in that place. They had the perfect excuse. 
They were at a place where people would not expect anything from them. They were in the worst kind of bondage, the kind that is socially, politically, and religiously sanctioned. I can't help but recall a quote from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. It's a quote from Eowyn. Aragon says to her, My lady, have you no fear? And Eowyn responds back to him and says, I fear neither death nor pain. But what I fear is a cage. And to stay behind those bars until old age causes me to accept them. And all chance of valor has gone beyond recall or desire. Let me translate Tolkien for you. What Eowyn is saying is that what I fear is not a fight. What I fear is a cage. What I fear is bondage and growing so comfortable in that bondage, I lose all hope, all desire for freedom and liberation. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for an answer? Are you waiting for a person? Are you waiting for a wife or a husband? Are you waiting for somebody to accept you? Are you waiting for an invitation? Are you waiting for someone to give you permission to grow up and be an adult? Are you waiting for someone to tell you that it's okay for you to praise the Lord? Are you waiting for someone to tell you that it's okay for you to go beyond where you presently are and to move into the next place of spiritual maturity? Are you waiting for a feeling? Are you waiting for goosebumps? And fuzzy feelings? If you're waiting on those things, you may get them, but you're not waiting on the right thing. A little bit more than a week ago, Bethesda School of Ministry got an invitation to go and minister at a women's shelter in Fort Worth. We love doing those things, and so we got together, we took off, and we went. We didn't have a lot of notice. And as we're walking out the door, I am asking the Lord, what do you want me to say to these ladies? We get there, and it's like plowing in concrete. I have to be honest with you guys, I didn't feel anything but a little bit of panic, wondering what I was going to say. I did not feel, oh, the Holy Spirit is in this house, and I can feel the fiery presence of God. There was none of that. Instead, there was that gnawing panic of what am I going to say to these ladies that will have any real impact on their lives. Well, I am having this conversation with God and we're worshiping the Lord. One of the songs that we're singing is Spirit Break Out. And as we're singing that song, I'm saying, oh, Jesus, break out. Because if you don't, this is going to be a royal failure on multiple levels. But guys, I could say that. Anytime I stand behind any platform and declare the word of the Lord. If God's not there and the Spirit's not moving, it's just words. And maybe a small amount of entertainment. Diana Biagagari, one of my students, comes up to me. And she whispers in my ear, Dr. Marty, I think that the Lord wants me to get a basin of water and some towels and to wash these ladies' feet. I went from panic to awkward to uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm just being real. And I'm about to say to her, 
I don't think today's the time, and I'm not familiar enough with the leadership of this place to endorse something like that. I'm about to say something like that, and the Holy Spirit stops me and says to me, do not discount my daughter Diana. Yes, sir. And I look at Diana, and I say, there's the leader of the center. Go talk to her. She will help you. And I'm thinking, maybe the leader of the center will tell her today's not a good day. <laughs> That's how spiritual I was in that moment. That's how much feeling I had going on in that moment. But within a quick minute, here comes Diana with pitchers of water and basins and towels. And as I'm going up to speak on the, on the book of Ruth, the first chapter, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And where you die, there I will be buried also. To talk about the need for every one of us to cross over in our relationship with the Lord. And I thought, oh, you know, this would be a good place. And any of the ladies that just think they need to cross over from where they used to be to where God's taking them, they can do this and this Washing of the feet would be a great symbolic representation of what God's doing in their lives. I'm still not feeling goosebumps nor warm fuzzies. Now I'm just back to feeling panic again. As I start sharing with these ladies, without me feeling a thing, the Holy Spirit shows up. After I've spoken for about 10 minutes and I tell them what we're going to do, and I tell them that if they're ready to cross over, that we would love to wash. We would be honored to wash their feet. When I said that, shoes and socks went flying everywhere. <laughs> and those ladies, as they sat there and allowed the BSM women to wash their feet and to pray over them, God did a transformational work in their lives. I waited on the Lord. There were no warm fuzzies. There were no goosebumps. There was panic and awkwardness. But I waited on the Lord. And not because of me, but in spite of me, God broke out in our midst. What are you waiting for? And it didn't stop there. There was a young lady who was sitting back, still and quiet. Kelly Hans looked over, another BSM student looked over and saw her. God tugged at her heart. She went and spoke to this young lady, prayed for her, and the young lady said, I have lived in darkness my whole life. I can't remember a time when there wasn't just darkness. And Kelly asked the question, have you ever received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? She said, no, let's do it right now. <laughs> Kelly had never led someone to the Lord. She did what we all do. She looked to find someone else. But there wasn't anyone else. And Kelly led that young lady to the Lord. And here's what waiting on the Lord will do for you. When that young lady confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, she jumped up and she said loud enough for everyone in the room to hear, My heart's on fire! I think my heart's about to burst. And then she starts dancing around kind of like this. And she says, I'm on fire all over. Before we left... This is the testimony she shared. She's in her early 20s, and she said to us, I have been stoned since I was nine years old, and today Jesus has set me free. I'm waiting on the Lord, because when you wait on the Lord, that's the kind of stuff that happens. When you wait on the Lord, and not a feeling, and not 
permission and not an invitation nor acceptance. When you wait on the Lord, that's when he shows up and surprises all of us. I wonder sometimes if the people at this porch, the five porches of Bethesda, I wonder if that could not be a description of the church of Jesus in our generation. People who are gathered around their issues with no expectation or even desire for personal transformation. I call these people the satisfied. I wonder if people who come to church just to feel better, but with no intention of making a personal commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I call these the sensationalist. They're looking for a feeling. People who are keeping the religious rules, but they're never breaking through into a living relationship with Jesus himself. These are the self-righteous. The satisfied, the sensationalist, and the self-righteous. But in, this midst, in the midst of this group of people hanging out at the pool of Bethesda, there is a particular man. Jesus passes by all the rest and goes directly to this man. In all the Gospel of John, there are only three people that Jesus goes to. Everyone else has to come to him. Jesus goes to the woman of Samaria at the well. He goes to this man at the pool at Bethesda, and he's going to go to a blind man. This man at Bethesda, he's been camping out there 38 years. Now, to someone who is my age, 38 may sound relatively young. But in the first century, the average lifespan was from 35 to 45 years. This man had been in this condition pretty much his entire life. Since he could remember, someone picks him up in the morning and lays him by the pool of Bethesda under one of the porches. And he sits there 38 years. He can see the water, but he can't touch it. He can see and hear what's going on in the temple, but he's not allowed to participate. That is the worst torture of all. You see it, but you can't touch it. You can hear it, but you cannot participate in it because there's something that's holding you back. There's something that's keeping you from the very thing that you need and that you want. In the Marty world, with my big old alpha extrovert personality, I think if that had been me, I would have, if my feet didn't work, I would have clawed my way to the pool with my bare hands. I would have gotten there somehow. If the only thing that kept me from the healing that I wanted and desired was a few hundred yards, I'd find a way to get there. I would roll myself if I needed to. I would ask my family to just drop me off in the pool and let me stay there. But it comes back to my point. These chains, this prison, this bondage, had become so familiar to this man that it never really occurred to him that there was anything else beyond this sickness. For 38 years, he'd been like this. Here's the problem. Jesus asked him a specific question. Do you want to get well? He didn't ask him, do you want to feel better? 
He didn't ask him if he wanted to feel the fire. And there isn't anything wrong with either of those things. But Jesus asked the man, do you want to be whole? The Greek word that John uses for whole, it's more than just physical wholeness. It's mental, emotional, and spiritual wholeness as well as physical. This is a yes or no question. The man does not answer the question. But instead, he gives his excuse. I have no one. When the water is stirred, someone else gets in before me. Do you hear the whine in his response? Do you hear the rehearsal in his response? This is not the first time the man has thought this. He's saying, it's not my fault. I'm sick because of those other people. If they would just be nicer to me, if they would just quit talking about me, if they wouldn't stare at me, I'm like this because they. Do you hear that in his response? I wonder how many of us sound the same way. God, I can't do this because my dad. God, I'm not capable of moving on with you because that person did this to me 38 years ago. I can't move forward because that person left me and abandoned me and left me with nothing. And so now I can't find my way out of this miry pit that I'm in. Always, almost always, when you talk with people, I'm talking about born-again, spirit-filled, church-going saints and you ask them what's going on, they will tell you why they can't do what God is asking them to do. I hear it all the time. People come to me, oh, I know that God's called me to ministry. Well, why don't you? Well, you just don't understand. I've got this, and I've got that, and I've got this going on, and this is happening, and I just can't quite seem to get over this, and you don't know what my ex did. You don't know what kind of family I grew up in. 38 years. There are some of you in this sanctuary. There are some of you listening online right now. And for 38 years, you have been stagnating. You're not going anywhere. You're not growing in your relationship with Jesus. You're saved just enough to get into heaven, but you're not saved enough to do any good on earth. And for 38 years, you've blamed anybody and everybody for your condition. And that's what this man has done. His entire life has been spent staring at what he could not reach, what he could not have. He could see the water, but he couldn't touch it. He could hear the praise and the worship and the celebration in the temple. And he could see the people as they climbed up the hill. But he couldn't go himself. He believed that the stirring of the water was the only way for him to get healed. There was no other way until it happens just like this. It'll never happen for me. Until an angel stirs the waters and somebody gets me in first, that's the only way my healing's going to happen. It might sound like this. Until somebody gives me a specific word of prophecy and quotes this scripture and sneezes twice and coughs once. You're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this man had no idea 
that the healing water he needed was not in a pool a couple of hundred yards from him. The healing water that he needed was talking to him. Here's the revelation of this passage. The revelation of this miracle. It's not just this man at the pool of Bethesda. It's me and it's you. We could not get to the healing waters. So the healing water came to us. That, in essence, is the declaration and the headline of the Christmas event. We couldn't get to him. We could keep all the laws and it still wouldn't be enough. We could give all the tithes and all the offerings, but it would never be enough to buy our way into the presence of God. We could follow all the superstitions and traditions that were around us. We could have all the excuses, but at the end of the day, we would be no closer to God. We could not get to Him. So this gracious, merciful, loving God came to us. God became man and pitched His tent toward us so that we could become the sons and daughters of God. When I think about this story in John chapter 5, I'm reminded of the lines of a song by John Starnes. The gulf that separated me from Christ my Lord, it was so vast the crossing I could never ford. From where I was to his domain, it seemed so far. I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are. And then he came to me. He came to me. When I could not go to where he was, he came to me. He came to me when I was bound in chains of sin. He came to me when I possessed no hope within. He picked me up and drew me gently to his side, where today in his sweet love I now abide. He came to me. That's right. He came to me. And he came to you. When Jesus had asked him the question, and the man had given him his litany of excuses. Jesus did not entertain his excuses, but simply said to him, some translations are very elegant, and they say, arise. But literally, this is a command, and Jesus says, get up. Not try to get up, not maybe see if you can get up, but get up. And I believe that's the word of the Lord for us today. Get up. Get up and wait on the Lord. Get up and move away from that filthy thing that has bound you and held you captive. Get up. And he says, take your pallet with you. I think it's remarkable that he says, take your pallet with you. That thing that he had been laying on for 38 years. That thing that reminded him of where he had come from. Here's what I think is happening. That thing that was once his trap had now become his testimony. Because that's the power of our God. Pick up your pallet and walk. Leave this place. Get away from this place of bondage. Get away from this attitude and this lifestyle and this group that would hold you captive. Get up. Take your pallet and walk. Jesus has not come to make you comfortable in your sickness. 
in your brokenness. He is the healing water. And he's come to save. He's come to heal. He's come to deliver. Let's go back to those original five people hanging out at this place called Bethesda. There were the sick. Literally, these are people who have no strength. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because God knows. There are some of you, your spiritual strength has gone. You have no strength to move away from where you are and to be more than what you are and to be everything that God has placed within your heart. You are spiritually sick. There are the blind. These are the people who just cannot see God in their moment. They cannot see what he's doing around them. These people are easy to identify them. You ask them, what's God doing in your life? And they say, I just can't see anything. Or you share your vision with them. Or you share the things that God's doing in your heart. And they say to you, I just don't see it. There are people who are unable to look through the lens of faith and see the hand of God at work all around them. These are the blind. Then there's the lame. These are people who have trouble walking. If they do walk, they just can't walk straight. It looks like the stock market. It's up and down and back and forth. Then there are the withered. These are those individuals who are dried up and barren. They can't produce anything. Their lives are a wasteland. And then these are the diseased. People who have infected, contaminated cravings and desires. Each of these words are used to describe individuals with physical ailments, but you will also find each of these words throughout Scripture to describe spiritual conditions. All of these are described as being afflicted. People who are restrained or being held back by something that's ruling and driving their lives. If you find yourself somewhere on that list this morning, I've got good news for you. The healing water is in the house. And the healing water has a name, and it's Jesus. If you are here this morning, and you're going to say along with me, Jesus, it's me. I need to wait on you. I need for you to heal and to touch something that's going on in the inner part of my life. I need for you to fix me. Would you stand with me? And I do say stand with me because I am standing. Heavenly Father, here we are. We're not waiting for some pool to be stirred. We are waiting for you. And our prayer this morning is do not pass us by. We are asking you to fix us. We are asking you to do what only you can do. That we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we could become doers of your word. That we would no longer be the sick, the blind, the lame, the withered, and the diseased. But we would be those people who have been made whole because we've been touched by the living God. And that's our prayer this morning. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.